live from the JLE in London. Join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. Welcome back, Rabbi Tatz. Thank you very much again for joining us. As we are in the final days in the lead up to Rosh Hashanah, there's been requests if Rabbi Tatz give us a bit of perspective and tell us what we should be doing on Rosh Hashanah. It's one of the biggest days of the year. If you could just give us your thoughts. Fine, indeed. Thank you again for your work on the series. Let's deal with one question about Rosh Hashanah, which I think people will find universal, by which I mean applying well after Rosh Hashanah as well. That is the question of why we do not do tshuva on Rosh Hashanah. We don't do tshuva. The act of repentance, the mitzvah of self-correction, whatever you want to call tshuva in English, we don't do it. Let's understand the question and then an answer which I hope people will find illuminating. The question is that Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. It's a life and death judgment. If there's one day on which, technically speaking, two days on which one should be calling out in a very heartfelt plea for one's life, this is the time, right? Turning in judgment, the life of one's family all being decided. Not a word, not a word. We don't do confession. We don't appeal for our lives. It's true that there are few small additions to the prayers which, in which we ask to be written into the Book of Life and so on, four small additions to the formal prayer of the day. But those were late additions. They're not essential. You can leave them out and you don't have to go back. They were subject to argument when they were included. They're very far from core or essential elements. On the contrary, there's a tradition that one should not be asking for anything. We don't single ourselves out as individuals. We don't mention ourselves. We don't do tshuva. We don't have a vidui, a confession. That's all left for Yom Kippur. This is exceptionally strange. Here, your life hangs in the balance. If there's one time you, you should be uh, motivated to call out an appeal to, you know, for a good judgment, this is the time. Even more strange, not only don't we do tshuva, clean up our act, so to speak, on Rosh Hashanah, we do it later on Yom Kippur. I would suggest that this is like having a court case, we have a very critical court case, making absolutely no preparation for the court case, and then hoping to win on appeal. I mean, no sensible lawyer would ever suggest doing such a thing. And here's a court case, your life hangs in the balance, you make no appeal at all, you know, all you do is praise the judge, yeah. you know, which is a very strange and suspicious mm. process. <laughs> and uh, in fact, our Talmud speaks about bribing God on Rosh Hashanah. And then what you do is when you get to Yom Kippur, you try to overturn a potentially disastrous judgment from, from before. And that is just not the sensible way to go. If I would speak as a doctor, I would say prevention is better than cure. You don't wait till the disease is far advanced and then try to fix it. I mean, that's just not sensible. So why on earth do we spend Rosh Hashanah focusing on something that seems completely at odds with the theme of the day, namely a judgment for life and death? And always speak about how great how great the king of the universe is. The whole day is devoted to nothing other than God, you are king. Hashem, you are king. Universal king, by the way. Not only of the Jewish people. This is a universal day. We ask that God should be king over the whole world. Even the three sub-themes of the day, namely the classical three elements of the central prayer, or one of the most famous prayers on Rosh Hashanah, the Musaf, which is Malchius, Zichronus, and Sherefus, these three themes also relate only to the basic theme of kingship, namely Malchius, 
Hashem, you are king of the universe. Zichronus, which means memory. That means a commemoration. That means going back to the moment of assertion of the agenda at the beginning of history when God ruled supreme. And thirdly, shofar. The shofar is the sound that is used for coronation of a king. We spoke about the queen and the succession of King Charles, and we we will note, no doubt, next week and probably all through the week, trumpet blasts that are blown for the crowning of a king. So even the shofaris is really, among other related themes, it is the central theme is the crowning of a king. So really, the whole day we spend doing nothing other than asserting that God is king of the universe, that we wish him to be king, we anoint him, so to speak, and we crown him king of the universe. And even the one mitzvah of the day, which is the shofar, is very clearly related to that theme. This is very perplexing. Let me suggest an answer to this question that I hope our listeners will find fundamental to their lives in general, not only to Rosh Hashanah. The answer to the question is, we haven't forgotten that our lives are on the line. We haven't forgotten that our success depends on Shiva. But we are doing something here better than Shiva. The theme of the day of crowning Hashem, King of the World, is a depth of Shiva that far surpasses the confession of specific sins. I would say, just to give an overview, Rosh Hashanah is descending to the root of the purpose of being alive, rebooting one's total life agenda, realigning with the correct values. And then over the next few days, you can work out the details. Yom Kippur is a day for getting the details right. Every twig of the tree needs to be pruned and corrected. Yom Kippur is an exhausting day of trying to atone for and correct all the actions that one has done. Rosh Hashanah couldn't be simpler. It is one theme only, that God is king, and I'm here to represent that. Let me try to explain this a little bit, and I hope, I hope the message will become clear. You know, if you're given five minutes a year to speak to your boss, CEO of your company, you have five minutes, uninterrupted time, you stand on the carpet in front of the, his desk, and you can say, or her desk, and you can say whatever it is you want. You can ask for absolutely anything. If you spend those five minutes asking for a bigger expense account, or more salary, or a new company car, you're missing the point big time. Those five minutes should be devoted to one theme only. Do you have a job next year? That's the only question that counts. Once that's established, you can spend the next 10 days haranguing your CEO with email after email requesting more expenses and a better car and a new office. But if you don't have a job, you look like an idiot doing that. Rosh Hashanah is only one thing. Let's get our basic values clear. I'm here to represent something higher. God, you are the reality, you're king of the universe, and I'm here to represent that. That's all. Once that's established and that's clear, you can spend the rest of the 10 days getting the details right. It's not that we've forgotten that our lives hang in the balance, but our lives depend on a correct definition of what our lives are for. And therefore, Rosh Hashanah, we're doing something much more potent than Shiva. We're doing Shiva, but in the deepest sense, we're descending to the core of what it means to be a human being living for a, a royalty which, which we represent. Let me try to explain this a little bit further. First of all, first of all, the Talmud says that the Jewish people have a certain greatness because we know how to bribe God. No, no less than that. Bribe God. You're allowed to offer Hashem a bribe. How do we do it technically? With a chauffeur. But what's the meaning of the bribe? The bribe works as follows. We say, Hashem, God, you don't need me to make the sun shine. You don't need me to make the rain fall. There, but there's one thing you need me for. Ein melech bolo'am. There's no king without a nation, and therefore, you, great as you are, infinite though you may be, without a nation that voluntarily accepts you, using our free will to make you our king, you are not king. And you created the universe to manifest your kingship, and therefore, you need us. Let's talk. Let's make a deal. <laughs> right? In other words, that's the bribe. And of course, that's exactly what he wants. Technically speaking, we use the chauffeur, and perhaps we'll talk about that, but 
That is the theme. And therefore, it's an acknowledgement of there's only one thing we can do in the world, and that is glorify Hashem. The concept of glorifying, which means giving kavod, is something that only an agent with free will can do. Think about that for a moment. I can't force you. I can force you to fear me. That's very easy. But I can't force you to love or honor me. Love has to be evoked. Honor has to come. Honor can only come from one who need not give honor. If a dictator puts a gun to your head and says, say I'm great, honor me, and you say he's great, that is pure humiliation. right? And of course the moment his back is turned, they topple the statues and they do anything to denigrate the leader. Honor can only be meaningfully given by one who is free to dishonor. Your free will is an absolute requirement, and that's why Hashem created us as free agents, to show love and honor. By the way, honor involves love. Honor is a combination of love and reverence. Right? Think about how you honor your teacher. You love to be close to him, but you also stand in awe, right? But then the timing isn't great because we are, we're honoring him and we're saying that he's king at a time where our lives are in balance. Indeed. The way we aim to save our lives on this day is by aligning ourselves with what our correct agenda is. That's the theme. In other then words. it's almost forceful, no? Yes. Since our lives hang in the balance... There's well, a of very, course we're going to say he's king. It's a very coercive. Yeah. Indeed, that is true. That is quite true. But you see that we have the free will and you see how many people on earth are denigrating Hashem's glory in the world, right? And following their own agendas. Yes, of course. This is the awe of Rosh Hashanah. If one correctly understands that your life hangs in the balance, absolutely. You will be definitely motivated to do that. That is quite true. But the point is you can ignore it and turn your back on him and as many people do. And therefore, this is quite true. So, the theme of the day is to declare that Hashem is king. And all the elements of the day go back to that idea. Let's talk for a moment about the Malchias, Echronus, and Shofris. Malchias, Hashem, you king. By the way, as I said before, we mean absolute king. Some people have accused us of being very sectarian. We think only about the Jewish people. We pray only for Jews. We don't care about non-Jews. That's not true. On Pesach, which is the one head of the year, we absolutely think about the Jewish people primarily. That's the festival at which we became the Jewish people. We became the unique, special nation that we are. And of course, we concentrate on that. However, Rosh Hashanah goes deeper. Rosh Hashanah goes back not to our origin as a Jewish people, but back to our origin as humans. After all, what does Rosh Hashanah celebrate? The birth or creation of the human being. Right? Hayoim haras Elam. Today, the world was conceived. So in Rosh Hashanah, we go back to the formation of Adam, Adam and Eve, human beings, long before the unique Jewish identity came upon the scene. And therefore, this is a celebration, an anniversary, if you like, of the universal creation of the human being. And so in Rosh Hashanah, of course, we fit into that theme. We don't talk about the uniqueness of the Jewish people. We do that as well in Rosh Hashanah, because obviously, every member of the team must be playing a unique part. But we descend far deeper than that in Rosh Hashanah. And that's why we say, for example, Malaychan Kolaylam Kolaylam. One of our great latter commentaries points out something fascinating. Why do we say Moloch al-Kola olam kulo? Think about it, we've doubled the word there, kol kulo. We don't do that in Judaism, we don't add unnecessary words. So why is our prayer phrased as Moloch al-Kola olam, all the world, kulo, all of it? Why do we double that word? And here, it's the Torah, I believe, says this. Something very, very deep and I think unusually beautiful. He says, if we said Moloch al-Kola olam, Hashem, please rule the whole world, we might mean simply a majority. Because halachically we know that that means that a majority is dispositive and a majority means all. Technically, after all, if you have an object on the edge 
of a precipice, all you need to do is push the object 51% over and it falls 100%. And therefore, this is a pervasive law in Judaism. If you're cooking a meat dish and a few drops of meat fall in, it's fine. I mean, don't try this at home, <laughs> uh, Rabbi Reisner. But if you do, it would be okay. The majority annuls the minority. If you're building a sukkah, and 51% of your sukkah is covered with schach, it's as if 100% is covered. 51%, a majority, is called all. That is the lachic concept. And on Rosh Hashanah, we say, Hashem, we want you to rule the whole world. But we don't mean notionally or nominally or legally. We mean all. We don't mean 51%. We mean everyone. We mean every Zulu cattle herder and every Chicago stockbroker and every Hendon teenager painting her nails black <laughs> with silver <laughs> glitter, uh, you know, glow in the dark. We mean everyone. And therefore, we couldn't be more universal in our concept of Hashem being king. Zichronis means to go back to the point of origin. Zikaron in Hebrew has the same gematria, numerical equivalent as the word zera, meaning a seed. We're going back to the point of origin. After all, Rosh Hashanah is an anniversary of the creation, when the seed was planted, when the world began, when the first humans were formed. And therefore, since it's an anniversary, like all Jewish festivals, we relive the event that happened on this day. What happened on this day was we were formed as human beings. So we go back to a reformation. On this day, you have the potential to live through what happened originally on this day. What happened originally on this day, man was formed clean and new. Therefore, on this day, you can return to a moment of new creation, pure creation. The word I used was return. That's what tshuva is. Tshuva means a return. Right? On Yom Kippur, we go through the tshuva of fixing this deed and that deed the day you kicked the dog and you spoke angrily to your mother. And, you know, okay. But on Rosh Hashanah, it's far deeper than that. Let's take one further step on this. You know, the shofar, why is that the mitzvah of the day? What does shofar mean? The concept of shofar is nothing other than a, a return to source. You know that the shofar has to sound like a cry. It has to be inarticulate. It has to sound like a cry, a groaning cry, a broken cry. Debate about exactly what that is, but it has to be an inarticulate cry. The reason is because the cry, an expression of the voice without words, is far deeper and far more meaningful than any amount of words. Words are always particles of meaning. They can never grasp. Words can never encapsulate. No matter how articulate and eloquent, the words can never transmit the whole thing. Words are always misunderstandable. But there's no misunderstanding the meaning of a scream of a child in the night. The sheriff has to sound like that inarticulate cry, because there's no misunderstanding that. It's the cry of the soul long before the, the, the sound gets broken up by the parts of speech into particular words. And therefore, the whole concept of shofar is to scream with the sound of a soul. And therefore, you look in the Marsu, what the ten concepts are that we think about shofar. One is the soul being born. One is the soul dying, right? Which is a sound that pervades the whole universe. A coronation of a king, because this is the moment where the king creates right, the world. And therefore, that's the concept. The word shofar itself, like all words in Hebrew, is loaded with meaning. The word shofar means the trumpet blast that we blow, of course, the horn. Shofar means beautiful. Shapir means beautiful, right? This is going back to spiritual beauty. Shapir means to improve or correct, le shaper. And fascinatingly, the word shofar also means shafir. Shafir means the amniotic fluid and membranes in which a child is formed. May shafir. The child is born, right? King David talks about shfir v'shilya, right? He talks about his hands being soiled with the afterbirth. Shfir v'shilya, the afterbirth and the membranes. So the child is, 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 is born from a sack of waters which is called me shafir, the waters of shafir, exactly the same water shofar. The shofar takes you back to the primordial fetal state at which you were once 
pure before you made mistakes in the world. And therefore, it's the perfect sound to take you back to that. Of course, I'm sure our listeners are aware that when you go back to a moment of being born from water, you are indeed going back to the moment of creation. How was the world formed originally? Covered in water. The waters were separated for dry land on which the human beings were created. And when the world went wrong and perverted its way, there was a flood back to water and a splitting of the waters. And there was a third edition of humanity, the Jewish people being formed by the splitting of the waters. When the Jewish people are born from the ocean splitting, our Kabbalistic sources say that when the ocean split <coughs> in the birth of the Jewish people, that was no less than a woman's waters breaking in labor. So the Jewish people are born from waters which are, and that is what the shofar does, takes you back to the primordial waters of the womb. And of course, that's the mikvah. When one goes into a mikvah, one returns to the primordial waters and achieves purity that way. So Rosh Hashanah is totally going back into the primordial waters of creation. When the world was formed that way, after the flood, the waters have seen split in the formation of the Jewish people, the soul returning to its fetal state, the body being put into a mikvah. These are all parallel ideas. Should the main feeling on Rosh Hashanah be one of awe, that there's a kingship that you're, or one of joy that you're celebrating a is it because there seems to be a certain heaviness in the air on Rosh Hashanah? Yes, not so as much as Yom Kippur per se, but there's a heaviness. Should there just be light-hearted joy of you know, like the coronation, or is there almost like a don't know how to say it other than heaviness? In yes, the air? you use the word light-hearted joy. No, it should be heavy-hearted joy, okay. and the reason is that it's an ecstatic day because it's a day of rebirth and reformation. But it's an awesome day because this this is critical because the magnitude absolutely critical, right? That's why the Kabbalists did not sleep on Rosh Hashanah. Since it's the day of creation, conception of the year, you don't want the year to be formed in unconsciousness. And therefore, what's required on this day is tremendous expression of mixed feelings, ecstasy at a new opportunity, and awe at the new opportunity. You know, Rabbi Razan, if you knock on someone's door who is extremely powerful, imagine a person who could change your life radically, and it's an amazing opportunity. How do you feel when you knock on the door? unbelievable ecstasy of opportunity and total abject terror. What if it goes wrong? We are creatures of mixed emotions. Gilu birada. We should be rejoicing, trembling. Yes, indeed. And therefore, Rosh Hashanah is a time which is a festival. We dress for it. We celebrate. We eat like on a festival. And yet, it's an awesome day. So the reason we don't do Chiva and Rosh Hashanah, our original question, is not because we've forgotten that it's important. We do something better. This is a day on which the basic agenda is being judged. Let me finish with this. Let me finish with this. We address the purpose of the day. The purpose of the day is not tshuva. It's not tshuva for your actions. That's not the purpose of the day. It's not what's being looked at. The Yom Kippur is that. Yom Kippur is the day when the Jewish people were forgiven. The Torah was given a second time in atonement. That's what's happening on the day of Yom Kippur, and that's why we address it. But on Rosh Hashanah, what's happening is simply new birth, new formation. It's a return to the basic setting of an agenda and therefore that's what we do let me put it to this by way of bringing our discussion to a close the Mishnah says that a person is like a tree a person like a tree have many parallels that's why we don't cut boys hair for three years like we don't take the fruit of a tree for three years many parallels now a tree can be planted in good soil but it may have some branches hanging over to a bad place or a tree might be planted in bad soil but may have some tree branches hanging to a good place which means Let's take a tree, for example, that's planted in a bad place, but it has some branches hanging over to a good place. This represents a person who is bad in essence, but they've done some mitzvahs. This is why a person who may be bad, 
may have a tremendously good life in this world. This is one of the reasons. After all, God has to pay them for their mitzvahs. You may claim that it's unfair that they get paid for their mitzvahs in this world because mitzvahs are worth an infinity in another world, but this person doesn't live in another world. They've invested themselves only in this world. To have a dividend in an account, you need to open an account. This person's never opened an account in another world. True, they have mitzvahs, which by normal accounts should be yield infinite reward but you can only claim your infinite reward if you exist in that infinite dimension by definition this person has sold his infinity for a finite existence and therefore the best God can do for him is yachts on the Caribbean and billions in his bank account that's one of the reasons why wicked people benefit what about a person who's a good person who's done some bad stuff so this is a person whose trees planted in a good place their branches hanging into a bad place this is the reason why some good people suffer we need a pruning when this person dies, they need to be clarified. And therefore, this person may have immense suffering in this world. That's a tremendous blessing. Well, this is one of the reasons, not the only reason. But one of the reasons that good people suffer, the branches are being pruned. That's the calculation. Now, the Rambam says something which is beyond comprehension. The Rambam says, where indeed is your tree planted? Where indeed is your tree planted? And he says this. And he says, your tree is planted exactly on the line of 50.000. The laws of Chuba, the Rambam says, when it comes to the days of judgment, one should regard oneself. He's talking about Rosh Hashanah and the judgment. He says one should regard oneself as being exactly 50.000 mitzvahs and 50.00 averas. Good deeds and bad deeds exactly in a town that is 50-50, in a country that is 50-50, in a world that is 50-50. The thinking being that if you push yourself in one direction and you do just one more mitzvah, he actually doesn't say that. He says if you do tshuva, that particular mitzvah, what you then do is you shift the balance and you overbalance, so to speak, for the good, your town, yourself, your town, family, your country, the world, and you save the world. What's perplexing about this Rambam is the Rambam makes it very clear that most people on earth are indeed 50.000. But that is incomprehensible. Is it conceivable that anybody's exactly 50? The Rambam, of course, says that not only number of mitzvahs, it's, it's magnitude of mitzvahs as well. But what are the chances that anybody on earth is exactly 50.000? It's inconceivable. Maybe one in a million. But the meaning is this. The Rambam's not talking about the technicalities of how your branches are disposed. What he means is that when you're born, your tree is planted exactly in the middle. You haven't done any good deeds. You haven't done any bad deeds. You are placed exactly at equipoise in the midpoint, and you have free will. And the question is, which direction will you move your tree? Now, Rabbi on Rosh Hashanah, only one thing's being decided. Where's your tree planted? That's all. The branches will be decided on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a day for attending to every branch and every twig. But that's not the judgment of Rosh Hashanah. The question on Rosh Hashanah is, where's your tree? Now, most people's trees have never been shifted at all. They were born into the world as they are. Do they do good deeds? Yeah, when there's an opportunity. Bad stuff? Well, yeah, they'll cut a corner when they can. They are doing good deeds and bad deeds, but they've never paid attention to their essential definition of who they are. They've never made a policy decision about where their tree stands. And Rosh Hashanah is only for one thing, shift your tree. That's all. When the Rambam says, take one step to the right. And that's why he doesn't say, by the way, do one extra mitzvah. He doesn't say that. He says, do tshuva. Any mitzvah will work, but it has to be a mitzvah that redefines you. That's what tshuva means. One more mitzvah won't help. You need a mitzvah that redefines who you are because the purpose of the day of Rosh Hashanah is only one thing. Where's your tree planted? And therefore, God is looking at only one thing on Rosh Hashanah. He's not looking at the branches. To start paying attention to the branches, you're missing the point big time. That's not the day for this. Rosh Hashanah is the day for one thing only. You were created with your tree on the 50.00 line. And this is the day in which you get to shift your tree. That's all that's required. One step to the right. One step to the right, you save your life, you save the world. That's all that's being looked at. And therefore, the day is utterly simple. It's a day for shocking 
the consciousness into a basic awareness of who I am and where I am. I was created 50.00. That is replayed every Rosh Hashanah. All that's required is to take one step to the right. Hashem, I'm here for the right reason. I'm not here for bad. I'm not here for neutrality. I'm here for something higher represent you. That's incidentally why the shofar should terrify you. What's the benefit of being terrified? Because when you're terrified, your life becomes clear. When you're 35,000 feet above the Atlantic and the wings start flapping badly, right? There's only one thing that matters, my life or my child, right? Now, all the business deals and everything else that you were thinking about fly out the window. And therefore, terror should take you back to the core value of what it means to be alive. And therefore, if that's why we want to be terrified of Rosh Hashanah. It's simply to reawaken the basic agenda. Wow. I'll leave you with this final thought. I think the thought that should be uppermost in one's mind in Rosh Hashanah Maybe a little macabre and a little bit morbid. But if I may, you know, when we leave the world, they will put a stone on your grave. Not much room on that stone. You can't write a whole lot of stuff, right? Very pithy and terse comment can be made about a person. You know, what would you like to be written on that stone? You know, he pulled teeth. He sold socks. She wrote contracts, you know. No, what you want to be written on that stone is, you know, you were a good person. You lived for something higher. You know, you made a difference to the morality of the world. And therefore, your life is a slow crawl across that stone, a slow etching of that one sentence, right, that will remain on that stone. And that's what's judged on Rosh Hashanah, is simply your mission statement. Anyway, those are some thoughts about the centrality. Wow. And of course, I'd like to leave our listeners with is universal message. And that's way beyond Rosh Hashanah. And that is in everything you do in life. First, assert the basic agenda. What's the goal? Where are you heading? We're looking for the laws of physics and chemistry, not the details. In medicine, we're looking for the diagnosis, not the peripheral manifestations. If you're not paying attention to your call, you're missing the point. Again, big time. How many of us sit in our businesses and every month we look at that graph on the wall, we analyze how we're doing? And how many of us have a sports agenda and we have a trainer? We but how many of the same people that do that never make a graph and a reassessment of who they are, where their marriage is going, how they're doing with each child in their family, their friendships, what they're here for, right? The basic message of life is, in any endeavor in life, is to descend first to the core issue, set the destination, define the agenda correctly, and the details will follow. Rosh Hashanah teaches you that message. Well, just to summarize it for myself, you can't really pray for life until you understand what life is, until you've had a hard reset on it. Indeed. It, you, the praying for life is not the point in Rosh Hashanah because what's being judged on Rosh Hashanah is what kind of a life you represent. Mm. And therefore, what is the judgment of Rosh Hashanah? It is, you know, there's conflict between whether Rosh Hashanah is a judgment for this world or the next. What does that mean? First of all, why should it be judged for the next world? There'll be time for that when you die. The concept is, explains the Gorn of Vilna, the first judgment on Rosh Hashanah is, what would you look like if you died now? In other words, who are you? And in terms of that, here's what you need for the next year. That's the concept. And therefore, the way to succeed in this judgment is to look like you should. Then you'll be given what you need for the next year. Right? But if a person hasn't even thought about the agenda for the next year, you know, the budgetary committee is going to have a very hard time deciding what kind of budget they need if they're not even aligned with the, you know, the goals of the business. So if you're being Mamle Hashem properly, it will automatically lead to self-reflection. That's, That's what it is. Mamle Hashem means, Hashem, I'm here for you. I'm here for something larger. I'm here for what you created me for. After that will flow all the details. Will I enjoy it? Absolutely. Of course you should be enjoying your life. Absolutely. Otherwise you're not going to do it effectively. But it all should be moving in one direction. There's an agenda. If you set up a business to make money, everything must move, even when you're spending money. 
it must move towards. Even when you're whining and dying your clients and enjoying it, the goal is making money. Your life should have an agenda, right? The agenda is that mission statement that you set out, that you should have thought about. Rosh Hashanah is the time for reasserting the mission statement. That's all that's being looked at on this day. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Ramitans. As usual, any questions, reviews, comments, suggestions for further topics, please do send to podcasts at jlead.org.uk. Thank you very much again. Thank you.